Welcome back to Essential Ethics and our series of recordings from the 2022 National Paediatric Bioethics Conference, hosted by the Royal Children's Hospital Children's Bioethics Centre. I am Professor John Massey, Clinical Director of the Children's Bioethics Centre. The theme of the conference in 2022 was Dialogue Across Difference. This conference session was a panel discussion entitled When Competence is Only the Beginning, Vaccinating Young People Against Parental Wishes. The panel was drawn from a mix of clinicians, researchers and legal academics from the Royal Children's Hospital, the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and the University of Melbourne. In this podcast, we explore the issues that arise when young people request vaccination for COVID-19 against the wishes of their parents. I hosted the panel discussion. Dr. Veronica Serrati presents a case of a 14-year-old girl with type 1 diabetes requesting a COVID vaccine from her GP. Associate Professor Danchin explains the medical benefits and risks and the clinical approach she would take when a young person in this situation asks for a vaccination. Professor John Tobin from the University of Melbourne explains how this sits within a human rights framework, drawing on the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. Professor Paula O'Brien, also from the University of Melbourne, considers the legal aspects, including Gillick competence and the varying laws and policies amongst the different jurisdictions in Australia. It is far from a straightforward picture, but in the end, a decision by the GP has to be made. So just picture yourselves as a GP. You're in a busy clinic in Melbourne. It's a Saturday morning, running late, started with a chest pain, it was going to be a bad day. Uh, And Brooke comes in to see you. Now, Brooke is 14. She called in asking to be uh, booked into the COVID vaccination clinic and your reception staff noticed, just noticed her age and very astutely thought she might be booked into a consult first. It's a Saturday, parents are working, they're unable to attend and, and she'd like to discuss receiving the vaccination with you. Even just at that basic level, what are you thinking? What would you like to know? What would your concerns, do you have any? Are you happy to proceed? You know, one of the things we've been thinking about in the conference is this idea of ethical heat. Mm. You know, are you feeling uncomfortable? There's something up here. We, um, do we have all the information we need. Margie, how do you, you, you know, you're, you're the GP. How are you feeling at this moment? <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, obviously... Yes, as a GP, but also for me as an immunisation paediatrician for the last 20 years, you know, this issue with COVID vaccination and young people has really come to the fore in a way that we didn't see as much with routine vaccination. We know that a lot of young people want to be vaccinated, move forward with their lives. And so, you know, we're seeing this in clinic and and obviously GPs are seeing this. So I think the first question is just to understand a little bit more about the young person and their context, so their medical history, particularly are they at higher risk? Because we do know with COVID infection, of course, that in the most part, children have experienced much um, less severe illness than adults. So you'd want to really understand a bit more about her medical history. And then importantly, a, a bit more about the social history. Why aren't the parents there? Are they actively against vaccination? Or, you know, was this something that she just did independently? So understanding her motivations to be vaccinated are really important, as well as the family history, I think, at this point. 
Buggy responded like a well-qualified GP and, <laughs> and paediatrician and one of the things that's come out in the conference is this idea of empathic curiosity to understand people and mm. why there might be differences of opinion and I think you know you're you're tapping into that yeah but you're a warm and fuzzy paediatrician um, and general practitioner in this scenario but we want something uh, clear-cut and uh, definite so we should just turn to our lawyer shouldn't we for a, <laughs> for a straight answer on this John what what do you think at this point uh, should we just go along and vaccinate her? Yeah, thanks John um, the law in fact the right answer to most of the questions is it depends is where we start to be honest so there's the obvious legal principles that informs this issue which is as we all know click competence and that goes issues around the child's capacity um, and so in the lawyer's mind you're asking the question well can this child be found to satisfy that test and that's something that we talk about all the time in medical settings with young people as well but to sort of go a step beyond that which goes to Margie's point from a human rights perspective it's actually the bigger conversation around that child so rather than let's go straight to capacity assessment let's actually create the connection with the young person as well so in the legal world in which I work there's that very explicit principle which guides the legal obligations of all practitioners in these contexts but there's a broader conversation and a rights-based approach which aligns with ethical practice as well about how we actually create that understanding of the child's relationship and then make informed decisions about whether in fact competency exists here and what other things are happening in that child's life that we need to support and structure them so whatever we decide today will leave they'll leave that clinic um, in a way that's empowered and respected rather than disempowered disengaged and undermined as well so there's sort of the two parallel lines happening here John but they should intersect to be a good practitioner would be my, my, my and sense. And if I could just chip in, John, the other thing I think as a GP, particularly if, you know, I've known this family for a long period of mm. time, is being aware of my relationship with the family and the parents as well as the young person. And that, of course, causes some ethical heat. Mm. I, I think mm. that that really is true, isn't it? Because you do know more and you're actually thinking of privacy for two, yeah. for two lots of yeah. people, your yeah. relationship with the parents and in particular your relationship uh, yeah. with, with the child. And John, I was interested, uh, but not surprised, you, you, mm. you brought up human rights mm. and I think um, for thinking of Convention on the Rights of the Child, I think, in, is it Article 3 which talks about one shall assure the environment around which a young person uh, uh, has the opportunity to he to be heard? Is that am I getting that right? Not quite. There's sort of three key rights or three key principles. So you've got the best interest principle, which the guides all practice in engaging young people. So Article three. That's that classic welfareist orientation. Let's make sure we do things that are actually in the child's best interest, and that sort of guides all our practice, both in law and, and ethical guidelines as well. And then you've got Article twelve, which is this: we must assure, create, enable, scaffold, allow the child to exercise and express their views, no matter affecting them like vaccination, okay, obviously as well, and then obviously give due weight to that child's views in those circumstances. So we're seeing this sort of transition from the welfare substitute decision-making by adults through to this emergence of a child's evolving autonomy and capacity where they decide for themselves. In between 3 and 12 is Article 5, and this is the one that's really interesting. It says, as, an, as a state, as practitioners, we have to respect the parents' rights and duties with respect to the upbringing of the child, but only insofar as they actually respect their child's evolving capacities. So this is mediation here between classic welfare, acting for, and then autonomy, enabling, and then supporting in between as well. So there's this sort of interesting transition that's taking place. This, uh, and the age 14 really becomes that point where that's not always clear. 16, 17, in our minds, we'll probably thinking, ah, autonomy's been reached. But 14, mm. the conversation gets harder, which goes back to Margie's points yeah. as well. I think best interest is fascinating because I'm actually, though, we've seen it earlier in the conference, John, as... 
has almost been weaponised or been used. Yes. I'm working in your best interest, Correct. so everyone else shut up. Yeah. And I know that's not exact. That's not at all what you're saying, but it's really yeah. interesting. Paula, would you want to chip in at the moment and make any additional comments? Thanks, John. Yes, I really agree with what John Tobin said. And actually, if you look at the Gillick competence test and the way that the courts have talked about it, they're actually asking for a very nuanced assessment about the child's competence when you're applying it that really reflects the human rights principles that John's talking about. So it's not actually a very cut and dry test and it really involves the practitioner spending quite a bit of time with the child to actually talk to them um, about how to apply it. So I actually am quite a big fan of the Gillick competence test because I don't think it's easy to apply, but I think it actually can be quite respectful of the child's rights if it's applied well. Thanks, John. All right, well, before we go on, I'm just going to throw up for you two that I, th I think that Gillick might be a bit thin here. And what Margie and Veronica are going to do is, is try and have a thicker conception, which takes into account Gillick, but goes a little bit broader as well. So let's hear about a bit more, Veronica. So you do know the family quite well. You haven't seen Brooks since she was a little kid with a chest infection, but her family have actually, her parents have actually come in to see you. They're not anti-vaxxers by any stretch, but they're a little hesitant, particularly for their girls. They're just a little nervous. Brooke, on the other hand, she has type 1 diabetes, so she knows this might increase her risk of severe disease or complications if she became unwell. And she's been looking forward to travelling, so... Vaccinations aren't mandatory anymore for overseas travel, but it's a school trip and, and they're pretty keen on it. And she wants to go visit her grandmother, wants to protect her. So you've really upped the ante here, mm. haven't you? And uh, <laughs> when we're thinking about uh, risks and benefits, then things... Uh, it's important that we've got this extra information. What we've got is more information about Brooke and how that might affect the decision. And we've got a bit more information about the relationship of the GP... Mm with the parents. Maggie, does this make it a, a straightforward decision for you? It's certainly not straightforward, but it underpins her motivations, which I think are really important to understand. So she obviously wants to protect herself. She's probably done some reading, given that she has diabetes, and I would explore that with her. She wants to travel overseas. She knows that that increases her risk through travel, and she wants to see her grandparents. So it's clear why she wants to be vaccinated. I would tease out a little bit her care of her diabetes and try and, again, get an understanding, because that's not easy for a young person to manage. So how is she going with that care? And this is all part of, I suppose, you know, what Paula was referring to and John around the Gillick competency. How sort of mature is this young girl? She's only 14, which is a really tricky age. It's not clear. It's a bit clearer for us, I think, often when they're 16, 17, 12, 13, 14 is really hard. So you're wanting to get a sense, I think, now of how mature this young girl is and, and is she aware of the issues? And then I would go into the vaccine and talk a little bit about the risks and the benefits and so on and gauge her understanding around that. Like, even though she's a girl, you'd want to talk about myocarditis, which is the most serious adverse event that has been associated, more common in boys, obviously. But, you know, just stepping through the issues around the vaccine as well and building a picture of this young person. Veronica, is, is it right that last year Brooke had an episode of diabetic ketoacidosis because she hadn't been taking her insulin perhaps as she should have been? Mm. Yes, yeah, she was quite unwell and, and I think that's exactly what it was. Maybe missed a few doses. Sometimes probably doesn't take as much responsibility for her own management as she should. Do you think, John, that tells us something about her? I mean, she's got a lived experience of diabetes but she hasn't necessarily done it the way... Uh, you know, highly engaged adult might do it. Is, is this lesson a 
capacity to make this decision about a vaccine? Yeah, I mean, it's one factor taken to that matrix, isn't it? So the Article 12 provision says due weight in accordance with age and maturity. So then you're assessing, well, age as a proxy for maturity, but not always a great indicator. Some children have lived experiences that suggest they're actually more mature than their age, particularly those who've been sick. But then those issues where maybe they're not seeing the level of self-care you'd want to have becomes another factor taken to that matrix. So the, the key point here, and it goes to Margie's point, this is a, this is not a simple assessment to make. It's about layering up as much information as you can, both with the child and the child's relationship with their parents as well. So there's actually a case in South Africa a few years ago around access to um, abortion services for young people. And the key point there was that they decided the child on the facts was a competent child and able to give consent. They said, we want you to actually try and work on your relationship with your parents first. We're very conscious mm-hmm. that whatever happens here doesn't undermine that relationship. So that's another, another layer. So if it's an adult presenting, you don't worry about the relationship with the, the, the partner or the spouse, or it might be. But with a child, the courts in that situation were saying, if we're serious about the child's best interest, we know that what happens here may have an impact on the relationship with the parents outside of that, that decision. So we want to make sure we can try and manage that as much as we can. At some point in time, though, you have to make that decision. And the, the question, I suppose, from like Margie's, where does that balance lie? If there's any doubt at all, do you say, sorry, I can't provide? Or if it's leaning towards, I think there's enough indicators to indicate capacity, then I will provide you with opportunity for that um, vaccination today. So it's, it's often a grey area at points, but the process becomes critical, certainly from a rights perspective. What process are you following to get to that point you make that decision about capacity? Can I just also add that I totally agree, I, you know, as a paediatrician or a GP, you would want to understand the parent's motivation and always encourage the young person to have this conversation with their parents if they can, and if not, why not? Because conflict going forward from a decision like this can have big implications, not only for your relationship with the parents and the family, but for the young person's relationship with their parents. And I think pointing that out, having that conversation is helpful. I've had that conversation a number of times with young people and they've actually elected to go and talk to their parents. So I think that's part of this whole, as you say, layering is a lovely word in the decision making. But but, um, Veronica and I are fighting over the phone to ring to ring the parents to get them involved. Paula, can we do that? Is that the right thing to do here to get this uh, layering that John wants? No, so you shouldn't be involving the parents because the your patient is the child. And so because of your obligations around confidentiality to your patient, you shouldn't be just running off to phone the parents. So it's very important that the conversation is with the child and you're encouraging the child to then engage in communication with the parents. So I suppose you might see a situation where the parents come to you to talk about um, the child's uh, vaccination status. Um, And so, again, that's actually a really um, a conversation that you have to be very careful in as well, because you have to be remembering that your primary obligation of confidentiality um, is to the child. The most helpful scenario might be if the child and the parent are together, which is, you know, Margie was sort of talking about, you know, encouraging the child to go and speak to the parents. And in those instances, the child going off to do that. And so maybe a child and a parent coming together, you know, might be a way to have a helpful conversation and might also suggest that, um, you know, the parents and the child are trying to sort of bridge some understanding gaps between them and then you might be able to help in those situations but confidentiality is really important and that's really important to the child's trust in healthcare going forward as well not just about the vaccination situation. And, and I think Paula in this case uh, a bit like Gillick which you know you could see Gillick I think is fairly limited to certain issues around uh, sexual health, for example, public health elements. But I think vaccination is is probably one of the other situations that's quite close. So I think Gillick does do some uh, 
work here. But for those who are interested, we had a really great session last year about Gillick and we dismantled it a little bit, uh, perhaps because we're trying to find a thicker conception of what's, of what's going on. Paula, thank you. I won't reach for the phone now and I'll try not to ring the parents afterwards. <laughs> but I think what we're all saying is that we're you know, promoting some dialogue, trying to understand uh, the various perspectives. Veronica, what happens? Uh, is there some more information we need here? Some more thoughts? Um, well, I had um, thought we'd consider the clinician's conflict as well. So just talking about legal considerations, I think we'll skip over, you know, we know what consent is and we talk briefly, I guess, about capacity. We assume an adult or someone aged over the 18, age of 18 is has capacity to consent. And there's slight differences in state legislation, which, you know, I can defer to my more expert colleagues, but at a basic level in South Australia, they... It, that there is some room to assume capacity in a 16 to 17 year old as well in regards to medical treatment. Uh, the New South Wales law is it's a little more complex, um, but to word it and I guess to include it for completion, um, that if it were to come to it, uh, a practitioner could, if were they to be found accused of assault or battery in terms of medical treatment, there would be a defence if the child aged 14 and over provided consent. It's very complex and I might just, if you guys are giving me the nods, we'll, we'll leave it at that. But there's also differences between policy and the law and just specific to COVID-19 vaccination in young people without parental consent. I thought I'd very briefly just to, to add to the complexities and sort of show some differences around the country. So in Victoria, Queensland, Tasmania and Western Australia, there is room for legal competence. So under the age of 12, a parent is needed to be present for vaccination. They, can, they must provide consent. But from the age of 12, there's that space where the health professional can ass assess or do, do a test of capacity for that child. It is different. So in South Australia and New South Wales, so it, it, as you know, we can, we've low from the law, from the age of 16, that young person may be able to give consent. But there's less scope for that Gillick competence here in terms of policy. And so under the age of 16, their policy is that the parent should be present for the vaccination. Slightly different in Northern Territory, but similar. Um, assuming the 16-year-old or above it has capacity to consent, that the parent may be present um, or at least provide the consent. And in the ACT, it's a little more complex, but there's a, there's a gap between providing consent or from a parent under the age of 16 or whether the parent needs to be present or not. And if the Prime Minister doesn't like the law in the Northern Territory or the Australian Capital Territory, he or she can just change it? Can just change it. Yeah. Um, I know that you've presented it very clearly. I know that I've looked at it very clearly, but that's just an unholy mess, isn't it? There's, yeah. Uh, we've got, I, I think we've got three things. We've got, you know, the laws... Mm. Yeah, state and sta laws, state mm. and federal. We've got policies, mm. state and federal. And I know that the, the immunisation handbook sort of sits more at a, a Gillick competence um, yeah. position. Uh, and then we've just got the, the final. Well, the other, the other, the third of the fourth. I made an extra one. Is you know, what will Avant the indemnity yeah. say? Mm. Um, and I think there's just trouble with the parents if mm. you go against the parents' wishes, which nobody wants to. So you may be right, it's all very well to be right, but no one wants to get into trouble. John, it strikes me that while ethics is, you know, sort of dialogue across difference and the stakeholders, uh, child, the parents, the GP perhaps, but do we need a bit of dialogue across difference at a policy level here? 
Yeah, absolutely. So my, my biggest concern with the way we think about young people in this country is we have a very fragmented approach across jurisdictions, across every issue we deal with. So, you know, obviously speaking to someone like myself, I'd be saying let's centre it around a common set of core principles and I'd be saying the Convention on the Rights of the Child is a pretty good place to start that conversation because we've ratified that document and it gives us, I'd say, a thicker conception of Gillick as you talked about. The sort of three, five and twelve articles make us think harder and deeper about those issues as well. We're stuck with this sort of transition between agency and welfareism. I'm not quite sure what either one means. We don't really see the child as having a voice. We don't really recognise their evolving capacity. So we create all these age-based presumptions that maybe they mirror up with practice, but they're often fixed and confusing as well. So part of the challenge, I think, is for our society as a whole to start thinking more complexly about who a child is and what their capacities are, and then to see our laws reflecting that complexity as well. Right now, we're seeing a dog's breakfast, which creates great dilemmas for practitioners, because at the end of the day, I think you made the point, you're worried about what the parents are saying, because they're the ones that are likely to take action. The child's less likely to take action. So you get it wrong, um, you're probably more likely to say, I'll make the parents happy rather than keeping the child happy, because in reality, the parents are likely to make a much bigger controversy than the young person might be as well. But that's not a great situation that medical practice is based on the quite legitimate anxiety around having someone come at you for them thinking you've made a, a mistake when in fact you may have a justifiable approach. It doesn't matter. It's the anxiety around what that might look like as well. So to go to your court, we have to create uniformity, which is based on really, I think, agreed upon ethical principles and standards, which I'd say can be found in the convention. Yep. Paul, I want to turn to you because there's some great comment in the chat. Sarah Martin um, has has uh, made a comment and uh, a couple of others, uh, Deb Gilmore, has followed on. We're setting the bar very high for her to prove her competence. Remember, adults are assumed to be competent and we don't need to take much notice necessarily when uh, incompetent children assumed to be incompetent. So they, we, we often set a much higher bar for children than adults. Is that the right thing to, to do or just a practical reality? Yeah, look, I think it's a great comment and I think that's right. And particularly because, say, in Victoria, where we don't have the situation in um, South Australia, so South Australia says 16, 17-year-olds have the same capacity as someone over 18. So in Victoria, for a 16 or 17-year-old, you're still actually having to go through this kind of very um, rigorous assessment. It should be a properly rigorous assessment, but it does set the bar very high. And I think that was coming up before in the case study about the diabetes. So you know, we've got this evidence that the young woman wasn't managing her diabetes very well last year. But remember, the Gillick competence test has to be applied in relation to the specific condition and treatment that the person, that the patient is presenting about. So the fact, for example, that she didn't look after her diabetes very well, it might suggest something about her maturity, but it also could be a bit of a red herring in terms of deciding whether she's competent in relation to the vaccination question. And so I think in some ways um, with Gillick, it can actually lead to a very high bar that's actually not how the test should be applied. So actually it's not probably quite right, but it does work in that way. And I think the example about the diabetes is a very good one where we hold that against the child um, and it may not suggest that it impairs her capacity to make a decision about something like vaccination. Now, I know COVID vaccination is probably more complex in some ways than other vaccinations. And, you know, maybe Maggie and you, John and Veronica can comment on that. But certainly the courts, when um, the family law courts have had to deal with these COVID issues between disputing parents, they have said that the COVID vaccination is not a straightforward treatment. So, 
Thank you. Oh, that's great. That's really important for us to sort of try and understand. And I want to just look at the chat here because Merle Spriggs, I'm not sure if you know Merle, but Merle worked with us in the Children's Bioethics Centre for many years as a, an ethics researcher. He's a very uh, clear thinker. Um, and for that, she gets a library named after her. No, so no, the CBC no. library, which we're putting together, we just need to tidy up, and for which you can all come later in the year and borrow some fantastic books, will be the Merle Spriggs Library. But Merle says, I think it's a mistake to base justification to vaccinate the teen, in this case, on their decision-making competence. Mm. The issue is whether to grant decisional authority, and the justification here is that it facilitates access to a medically recommended and evidence-based treatment involving minimal personal risk and offers other substantial benefits uh, with community protection, etc. And she refers to a paper by Silverman, Doug Opal and Omer. John, now how do you respond to that? Is it, she's suggesting capacity isn't really the, so much the issue, is yeah, it's interesting thought, isn't it? So we're looking at the benefit that flows to the child. That's a question that would we apply the same test for an adult? I'm not sure we would, would we? So this goes to us making decisions about what we see in the child's interest beyond that decision to match. So we want them to be vaccinated because of the benefits that flow from that. So I'm not quite wedded to that same thing. I have to tease it out more, but I ask myself the question, would we require that same assessment when it comes to an adult? Would you say, you want the treatment, it's lawful, it's legitimate, therefore you've got capacity, you satisfy the requirements of that particular practice as well. That same test then applies to a whole range of other things concerning things like body piercing, gender transition, a whole range of other sort of health practices. We might not necessarily think the child should be undertaking, but we still might say, well, how can we deny them capacity? They've reached a threshold for competency the same way that an adult would as well. So I think it's a really important thought to think about and ponder, but I'm I'm asking myself, do we ask the same of adults? But also just to chip in, she is in a clinical high-risk group. Yes. So she's in the group that benefits the most from COVID vaccination. Mm. So she's got insulin-dependent diabetes. She wants to travel. Like, the benefit far outweighs the risk. As I said, you know, there are common and expected side effects of these vaccines. The main concern has been around myocarditis and pericarditis, really low-risk in girls, mm -hmm. in teenage girls, compared to teenage boys, where it's higher after the second dose. So here, the benefit of vaccination is much clearer for this young woman than the risk. I mean, Maggie, you, uh, you, you're sort of, you and John are sort of raising this issue, I think, where, whereby there's, you know, we, we're exposing that capacity to make decisions. You make a good decision, easy. Yeah. This is high benefit, low risk. Don't need as much capacity necessarily, although uh, versus uh, somebody with the asymmetry, particularly if you want to make a bad decision or you request something bad. Uh, John, like um, like piercings, my daughter yes. might be listening, so I yes. mean, don't want yes. you to be promoting yes. that. Yep. Veronica, have we got we're nearly out of time, so have you got some more information to share with us? Oh, just a little zinger. So Brooke appreciates the conversation. We'll just leave what the outcome was at this stage, but she'd like to bring in her 11 year old sister for a chat. Right. Tricky. <laughs> now we call a friend. Uh, well, I think we what we do, well, I think what we do is take a great big breath, think of the uh, ethical and ethical underpinnings, the legal uh, situation. Um, John, you might have to do some work between now and next year's conference yeah. to uh, uh, get some some uh, symmetry between uh, federal and state laws. Uh, laws, policy and uh, litigation, which is not a big ask in 12 months. Mm -hmm. So, uh, But let's uh, thank uh, our panellists, uh, John Tobin and uh, Paul O'Brien. Thank you very much for coming, Margie and Veronica. Thank you very Thanks, much. Thanks, John. Thanks, yeah. John.
I hope you enjoyed this podcast from the 2022 National Pediatric Bioethics Conference. Please give us a rating on your podcast app and feel free to share it with your colleagues and friends. The conference sessions were recorded in the creative studios at the Royal Children's Hospital. The National Pediatrics Bioethics Conference was supported by generous funding from the Royal Children's Hospital Foundation and the Humanity Foundation. The conference will be on again this year in September. To find out more about the conference and the activities of the Children's Bioethics Centre, please visit us at www.rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential Ethics. Be inspired. Be inspired.